It's another episode of Movies You Should Love with Lauren and Scott. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Movies You Should Love with Lauren and Scott. I am Scott, as always, and joining me as always is... Lauren. Exactly. And this is Movies You Should Love. We basically are a podcast dedicated to discussing, debating, picking apart, uh, sometimes mocking, but always kind of critiquing, hopefully in a positive way, uh, all those movies that you should love. We look at modern films, we look at a lot of classic films, and we're kind of going through the AFI Top 100 right now. Uh, This week's episode is going to be about the Maltese Falcon. Uh, But before we get to that, I would like to encourage everybody to check us out on Facebook. We're uh, facebook.com, Movies You Should Love. On Twitter, uh, at Movies You Should, our, we have a, actually a really cool website that we try to fill with all sorts of cool content uh, at MoviesYouShouldLove.com. And be sure to rate us on iTunes if you like us, and if you don't, uh, rate somebody else. But uh, anyway, before we get into the Maltese Falcon, Lauren, um, what have you been up to lately? What have you been watching? Yeah. Anything good? Yeah, um, I have. I've seen some a couple of pretty good uh, things here. Um the first one that I would talk about today with you is uh, uh, is the mover uh, the mover the movie Beginners. Um, it uh, I just saw that one uh, last night or the night before, mm-hmm. and uh, really quite enjoyed it. Um, it has uh, Ewan McGregor and Christopher Plummer in it. Christopher Plummer got some really good nods from the Academy yeah. uh, during the last Academy Award season for this movie, and um, you know, it's it's a movie I don't think that's going to be everybody's cup of tea. Um, first off, it's kind of a hipster movie, I would say. A little bit. A little like bit. it it's it it feels like it fits right in with kind of hipster culture. So if if hipster culture is not your thing, I think you're going to uh it could drive you up the wall just a little bit. A little bit. I do I did enjoy its kind of quirky sense of humor. Especially at the beginning, some of the quick montages they did and his conversations with the dog, <laughs> some of those things I really got a kick out of. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's just, it's kind of a fun, a, f- a surprisingly fun film considering how dark and depressing it is. Yeah. Um, it's kind of how I would say, you know, it's, it's about someone, you know, dying from cancer and about someone um, not being the person that you've known them to be mm-hmm. their entire life. And basically, about you know kind of figuring out how to live your own life and so those yeah. are those are really big themes and you know it's it's characters who who haven't figured all of those things out at this point and so it's you know it's definitely a bit of a journey and mm-hmm. um everybody's kind of finding themselves at the beginning of a new stage of life yeah is kind of the kind big of, thing yeah, exactly exactly um and so yeah it's um I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I will say it it touches on themes that I think there will be people who are uncomfortable with, um, mm-hmm. which is probably part of why it's a good movie, because good movies, I think, challenge us to think a little bit more. Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, use discretion if you think it's, you know, read up on, on what it's about. You know, some people are just not going to be interested in it. Um, yeah, that's actually a really... A, a good segue point, unless there's something else you wanted to say. Nope, um, I, I really liked it. Talk about good movies that should kind of challenge you. Um, Total Recall is not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> the original or the new one? Uh, the new one. I and I doubt the original is really much of one either. <laughs> I've only seen the original once, honestly. But uh, I saw this movie, maybe it might have been a week ago already. 
London and I had a an evening to ourselves, and so we're like, let's go to the cheap theater, let's go see something. And she was like, we need to see Total Recall. And I was like, you know what? The trailer looked pretty good. That could be fun. And I um, will agree, the trailer actually did look pretty good. And honestly, there's some really good sequences in it. There's some very memorable action sequences in it. Uh, I really only have really two kind of big gripes about it. They're just kind of biggish gripes. One is that the movie is ex- basically an extended chase sequence. It's like casting. It's kind of like um, the Born Identity on the set of Blade Runner. Like it, it never really stops. I know both of those movies I love, and this movie I enjoyed. It just could have been more. Um, I'm going to spoil it a little bit for people because the movie spoils itself about 15 minutes in there, and that is um, the whole movie is basically about this guy living in the not too distant future, but fairly distant at the same time. Um, in which there's a place called Recall. Life has gotten so bad that this, there's this new business that will give you new memories. And um, so he goes there, and the guy's like, oh, we can give you anything you want. You want to be a superhero? You want to be, you want to be cheating on your wife with a mistress? You want, you want to be a, a super agent spy? And Colin Farrell's like, ooh, super spy, I like that. And as he's getting into the chair so they can plant him these new memories, uh, the guy's like, oh, just, just know... Um, we can't give you parallel memories of something you already have. So if you already have a mistress, we can't give you a fake mistress because your brain will have issues with that parsing which one's real and which one's not. So we can't do that. He's like, it's okay, I've never been a spy. Um, And then the way they shoot this sequence is probably the best part of the film because um, just they're putting the needle in him because it's a chemical process. And then all of a sudden, the guy starts freaking out, going, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it, you know, shut it down, he, he's actually a spy, and then people start bursting into the room, it's that scene from the trailer where all the men in white come in, and he, sh- he kills them all, and it's like, whoa, and it, the way it's shot is really clever, because you can't actually tell if they injected him or not, mm-hmm. so you can't actually tell if this is the beginning of his new memory of, like, actually, we can't give you this memory, you're already a spy, wink, or if he actually is a spy who has been alerted, um, and so, I was really hoping and was assuming the whole movie was going to co- constantly be asking you that question of whether or not he's a spy or not, but it doesn't. Like literally, like two scenes later, they basically tell you, "Nope, he's a spy. He's this real." And they, they they cut away from him and they show why people are chasing him. They show all of this stuff, and so the movie never has any real questions going on and it's really just a is he gonna i I guess he's just gonna try and stop this rebellion from happening which also seems to i haven't seen it yet yeah also seems to beg a question like why would he ask for that particular injection if he already was a spy and it does kind of answer that in that like he was a spy and then like these people that erased his memory or they pulled they they did something and they set him up over here so they could keep an eye on him without killing okay. him. So there is like so that does kind of come into it. But it's just I thought it was really unfortunate that they explained all of that so early in the film. Um, especially considering this is um based on a Philip K. Dick book and you know, Philip K. Dick has always written these books that are so mind bendy and you never are quite sure what's real or it really kind of delves into some deeper stuff i thought it'd been really cool if this movie had been shot completely from colin farrell's perspective so so that the movie never tells you why people are chasing him so that you know maybe he discovers things and at the end of the film did it happen or was that his memory that i thought that would have been such a cool thing to do and it was basically built into the premise they just jettisoned that literally like 15 20 minutes into the film and it's just like, oh, so Kate Beckinsale is chasing him, and Jessica Biel is trying to save him. 
check. <laughs> and so it was a little disappointing. And but I mean overall it was it was a fun it was it's a fun film. It's it's there's worse ways to spend two hours. Um I'm kinda glad I went to the cheap theater on Wednesday, so we only paid a dollar a person for it. You know, I might have been a little disappointed if I had paid like ten dollars a piece. But uh you know, it's not bad. It's just it could have been more. Is probably yeah. my biggest gripe about it. That makes sense. Yeah. You want to touch on something, or do you want me to move into my other kind of <laughs> yeah, quasi disappointment? Yeah. Why don't you Why don't you jump into your other quasi disappointment, and then we can, uh, yeah, taken to the tokening. Nah, the tokening. <laughs> um, okay. Taken two is actually a, a lot of fun. I probably enjoyed taken two a little bit more than Total Recall, um, but it kind of had a couple things going. Here's the thing I loved about Taken Two, is that it really ex- it explored this concept that we've kind of played around with, but have never really delved into, which is the henchman's family. Hmm. Um, if you if you've seen the first Taken, you know that Liam Neeson basically uh, killed a lot of people in Europe to try to save his daughter from being part of a sex trafficking ring. Um, this movie begins with the father of several of the men who were in the first movie who had, were killed by Liam Neeson, basically swearing at their funeral, we will have our revenge. How dare he kill our our son, our, fa- our, our father, our husband, our nephew. How dare he do this to us? We will find this man and we'll make him pay. Which is kind of compelling because it kind of... It, it takes the so the villain of this movie is basically the flip side of the coin of Liam Neeson. You have this father, you have this grandfather who will stop at nothing to honor his children who were wronged. Well, and I love the idea of I love the idea of an action movie having consequences because yeah. so this, because they never do. They never action do. movies never do. You know, a hundred people die in that bus or whatever, and. Oh well, and, but yeah. that hero he saved the day. So, despite, so, yeah. so exactly. Know. So this concept actually kind of deepens some of the impact of that first movie. Especially, I assume if I went back and watched the first Taken, now I'm going to go, "Oh wow, I know who some of these guys are, and I know what some of these actions are." And it, it, the way the movie ends is this really kind of interesting. Like, when do you break this cycle? Because if I just keep killing people, if I keep fighting people. I'm just going to make more people angry, and I'm just going to make, possibly bring down more wrath and revenge on myself. When do you stop it? Is it possible to stop it? Can you stop it? So, I mean, there are some interesting things going on here. Which is, uh, sounds great for the filmmakers. Exactly. And they can make this go forever now. Forever. <laughs> they really could. Um, the other thing I really like about it is the character. I really like Liam Neeson's character. He's still, he, it's just, he's this really interesting guy who will completely destroy you physically, who can, you know, take you out super fast, can break your body, can kill you. But he's also kind of sensitive in a weird way. Like, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's and I kind of appreciate that, that kind of the dichotomy. When he's with his wife, his ex-wife, when he's with his daughter, he is, you know, he's really there to try to help them. And not just in, like, I can defend you, but he's asking probing questions that are, full of concern and love for his ex-wife and for his daughter and he wants to be there for them in whatever capacity which I think is really cool um the problem I had with the movie which is a little bit bigger than both of those things is that it has no suspense and it has no surprises Hmm. the first movie 
really i think really capitalized on that fear of like what if the person i'm supposed i'm responsible for is kidnapped what would i do what to what lengths would you go to protect your family and i this kind of tries to do the same thing but since it's it's but it's essentially just a revenge a revenge tale and so it it feels like a lot more of a standard generic action film it doesn't have the visceral response. Maybe it's because it's suffering from sequelitis, mm-hmm. but it's just kind of like, oh, this is just another kind of action movie and kind of an improbable one in which his family surprises him in Istanbul after the end of a job. And then while they're in Istanbul, they are attacked by these people who have tracked him down. And this is weird. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have some of the. Here's the thing. I think, honestly, it, it needed an additional surprise or a shock or a twist. Um, and if you've seen the trailer, you know the first half of the film. Um, and so, and then knowing the first half, the second half comes really as no surprise to you. It's only a 90-minute film, so it's actually really short. Mm-hmm. And so there's actually, it's very, very light on story. Um, I would have honestly, and this is me as a, you know, I know, uh, quarterback, armchair quarterback, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Um, there's a scene in this movie where, Liam Neeson is tied to a, a metal pole and the, the big bad guy is like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your family. I'm going to do all these things to you. I would have made that the trailer, like that scene, you know, cut it with some shots of Liam Neeson fighting people, but really tell people nothing about the family involvement. That way, when the family does get kidnapped, it's a surprise and it's kind of scary. In this, you're kind of waiting for it to happen. Mm-hmm. So the other problem I had with it is the editing of it. It is clearly a movie that it's a PG 13 and it's a hard PG 13, just like the first film. Both of these films could be very easily rated R. And in my opinion, I've never seen a film that is so clearly going to have an unrated edition than this. There are several sequences that are so chaotically edited that I can't help but think that they were trying to hide broken bones and blood and all the things that they actually probably filmed on set. And there was even a weird, uh, a weird recycling of shots in a certain, in a particular scene, which I won't spoil. It's at near the end of the film, but you, I kind of went, wait a minute, because it's clearly the same shot. They just kind of used it twice in a weird way, hmm. uh, and using it in a way that's not supposed to be the same shot. It's not like it's not a flashback. It's like we did this, and now we're doing this again. Um, and also, the way he kills the the last bad guy is very strange. And in, in the editing, it's not what he does to him. It's what you have to assume he did because they don't really show it. And in what they don't show, what they do show becomes like, wait, what? Oh, I guess he's dead now. That's weird. So it, it's it, it's not a bad film. You know, it's, again, I, I kind of went into it not really needing a second Taken. Um, and really, if they were going to do another movie, I don't think they should do Taken 3. I think they should really do... Another, if they want to do another movie, do another movie with this character. Send him on a mission, like we were talking in the last podcast. Have him protecting somebody, trying to save somebody. You know, something like that. I think would be really cool. You know, having to protect somebody for for forty eight hours until backup shows up. Something interesting. Um, if they decide to do Taken Three and the bad guys attack his daughter's wedding, that's the other thing this movie had. Ma- uh, what's her name? I think it's not Maggie Grace. Is it Maggie Grace, the girl from Lost? From Lost. That was. My biggest issue with the very first movie as well is that she was playing, what, like a 16 or 17-year-old kid? And And she is obviously like 25 or something like that. And in this movie, there's a big subplot about her taking her driver's test. Oh, wow. And you're just like, 
what? <laughs> like, and they kind of seem to try to they try to play it off like, yeah, she really should have taken her driver's her driver's test a long time ago. But it's weird. Like the with it being a reoccurring plot point, it really feels like they really wanted a sixteen to eighteen year old girl playing this part. But they have her, and she does a great job. And in the in the action sequence she's involved in, she does a good job. It's just it seems like it, she should have had a different subplot. Yeah, the um, clearly not eighteen. Yeah, that like I said, that was my biggest issue with the very first movie, and I, I can honestly say, despite her doing a fantastic job with the material given her, yeah, I do not understand why they did not just cast one of the thousands of sixteen-year-old actors, yeah, who are available. I mean, I know it's an R-rated film, well, PG thirteen, but with a you know unrated version of it. Uh, you know, I know, I know that that it's dealing with really intense subject matter. And so I still can't imagine that there would not be a 16 year old actor who would love to be in it. Yeah. Who, um, and, and who actually would have been, you know, the right age for the you movie. Said, you said a really great thing is everybody does a great job with the material they're given. And that's the thing. And they really, everybody does do a great job in this. It's, um, it's just, they don't necessarily have a lot to do. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the scenes are a little, you know, like, okay, well, that's good. And, and Liam Neeson brings a great presence to his roles. And I, you know, I will watch pretty much anything he's in. Uh, yeah. So, and by the time everybody hears this, it'll probably be almost out of theaters. But um, it, it, this was basically opening weekend for it. And we enjoyed it. It, it just, it wasn't, it, was, it wasn't necessarily the movie that I, it, it could have been. Yeah. Anyway. Well, uh, speaking of Liam Neeson, we, you and I have never discussed this movie, but I have seen it. More recently, I think, than you have here. Yes. Um, but I finally saw The Grey, yep. um, which I've been waiting to see for for a long time, and it finally finally came up in Netflix, and, and so I've I've sat down and, and watched it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, well, here, here's, what, here's what I will say about it, because you said you kind of wanted to discuss it with me. Because, um, first off, there's going to be spoilers in this. No. I'm sorry, say that again? I wanted to discuss it with you, especially on the podcast, because it was such a fascinating and surprising film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, there's going to be spoilers in what we say here, but um, I, basically, let me just, before we get to the spoilers, I just want to say, I really liked it. Yeah. Um, and I know... Yeah, well, I was going to say, I, I know you and I have talked a lot about, like, horror movies and whether we like them or not like them and what, you know, what kinds of things we think constitute... To me, this definitely falls in that line between horror and mm-hmm. suspense and, and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Because it's, you know, it's very much a creature movie. Um, <laughs> you have wolves that are chasing Liam Neeson at all. and um, kind of Supernatural wolves, it seems. Yeah, potentially supernatural wolves. Um, and, and they are legitimately scary. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, that said, this is exactly the kind of horror movie that I like. Yeah. When, um, I, when I told a friend at work that I was going to watch it, they're like, isn't that the movie about Liam Neeson fighting demon wolves? And not really. I mean, they're not even demon. I mean, they're, they're played off to be the way they're described in the film and even shown in the film. They're supposed to be real wolves. These are not actually supernatural wolves, but they definitely are. Uh, metaphoric wolves as well. Yes, <laughs> yes. And uh, it's very interesting because um, I, I absolutely know that real wolves pr- 
pretty much act absolutely nothing like the wolves in this movie. Right. And yet, this movie makes the wolves act exactly how I think a real wolf yeah. would act. And so it preys on every single absolutely. primal fear of wolves that I have it, in it, my entire body. Abs- the movie absolutely capitalizes on your on anybody's natural unknown fear of the outdoors mm-hmm. you know it's like everything you could if you like oh we can't do that because of this this and this it doesn't matter if those fears are unfounded um mm-hmm. you kind of have those and this movie kind of just exploits all of that yeah yeah so that's kind of like the base level of this movie that's like the most yeah. minimal amount of stuff that is going on in this movie at any time because it, it elevates so much further than that yeah, very that quickly. Was the, su- the surprising thing to me about this movie because that's what the trailer sh- makes it out to be like Leonisian straps broken bottles to his fist and fights off wolves come and, see it and here we go to the first spoiler that's literally like the last five or ten minutes of the movie that's the last five seconds of the or movie. Five seconds of the movie. Like the, the shot you see in the trailer of Liam Neeson with the bottles on his hands and then running towards the wolf. Yeah, that's cut the black. That's the last thing you see, which yeah. is just it shocked me because I really thought this was going to be a forgive me dumber movie. You yeah. know, like I thought this was going to be just like okay, he's going to fight wolves with his bare hands. Let's watch this. Mm-hmm. That is not what this movie is about at all. No. Um, you know, this it, to me, this is was just a very. Um, I mean, you've talked a lot about how recently you've started crying in movies. Uh, yeah, there is a scene. Uh, well, the the plane crash scene in here, right? Which I don't think it's a surprise to anybody. There's right. a plane crash in this movie. Um, the plane crash scene happens, which I thought was one of the best plane crashes I've ever seen in a movie. It was good, very well handled and and done. Um, but right after the plane crash. Um, Liam Neeson kind of he got ejected from the plane or something. He he wakes up a little bit away from it. Yeah, we we kind of see the plane crash and then we kind of fade and and come back. And he he stumbles to the plane and comes across the carnage of the crash. Yeah, and um, ultimately ends up there's a guy inside the plane who's basically missing like the bottom half of his body. Yeah, something like that. And he's and is in process of dying. Yeah, and Liam Neeson talks him into the sleep of death basically yeah. and it is it is the most beautiful awful moment i have e- maybe ever seen in a movie it was it yeah. was like i was crying yeah by the end of it i yeah. had tears running it, it was it was beautiful it's kind of like yeah it's like the worst way to go and exactly what I would want someone to say to me in, in those Neeson's moments <laughs> in Liam Neeson's voice that like that. No, you're absolutely right. It was the best way to go in the worst way to go possible. Basically. Absolutely. Other than that, maybe being eaten by the wolves. No, that, it was, the, it was honestly that moment where I really realized mm-hmm. that this was not the movie I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Because leading up to that point, you can't, you can't quite, I couldn't quite tell what kind of movie it was going to be because it was a lot of setup about why these men were on the airplane, where they were going, who they are. And then from that point on, it becomes, it's, it's a man versus nature movie where it's kind of that classic mm-hmm. man versus nature. But also within that are a lot of spiritual and existential questions and mm-hmm. conversations that really kind of leave you in a slightly deeper place than you began the movie. Yeah, it's you know it's man against nature, but but really I think what it really is about is kind of this man against his internal nature. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's it's yeah. I mean, that's that's really and that's what's fascinating. To self, yeah. definitely. You know, the wolves are kind of a manifestation of of the things that these men are already kind of dealing with, and it's um, man, it's 
I I loved so much of just the the depth of conversation and the um the inner probing that these men were going through kind of in in yeah. this moment where they where where they were facing their own mortality pretty much already knew they were going to die clinging to like what they had what they had or what they didn't have in their in their selves yeah. and that's i mean that's ultimately what it was is you know the the people who had self were able to do things that others were not and and uh, it's just it's a fascinating what does faith mean in this moment what does faith mean all into these it? things it was yeah it's um, like I, I don't know if i necessarily agree with the overall conclusion mm-hmm. but there's also there's also i feel like oh, there's a lot to it where you're left mm-hmm. to your own conclusions well and you know what i mean yeah because uh, you know i think i think kind of the the interesting thing to it is that the character who really expresses the most faith mm-hmm. in the movie has the most peaceful death in the movie. It's true. Despite dying in the same way that everyone else dies. Right. Or in some ways you can consider it even more horrible because of the fall first and then yeah. and then the wolves. So it's like a double set of horrible circumstances versus just the one set. But, but he's in a situation where that's the way he's going to die. He says yet, everybody's going to die that way. Yeah, and yet he goes out in such a way that he's facing the things that he wanted to see at the end of his life versus mm-hmm. everyone else who's kind of facing the terror or the mm-hmm. so it's it's a very interesting kind of look and then you have Liam Neeson who's who's a conflicted character and you know kind of comes to a place at the end but at the same time um you know even that is is hard to say exactly how that works out completely. Did you see the scene after the credits? Yes, because there's a scene after the credits. I mean, that scene the- is a strong word for what, we, what happens yeah, after the credits. Again, another like five seconds. But it, it gives you a little moment of possible closure that doesn't really answer questions, but leaves you supremely satisfied. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, really, it's, you know, whether you agree with, with the decisions the characters make, and, and I don't mean that like, you know, if they should keep walking. I mean right. that like, no, like no. The, the personal... Decisions, convictions, and convictions, decisions, and yeah. decisions. Um, you know, it's very. Uh, to me, it's it was a very challenging mm-hmm. and um, absolutely. You know, um, this is the yeah. movie. Honestly, I would recommend if people want a good Liam Neeson film. I would I would send them to this before I would say Taken Two or even the first Taken. Um, I good, agree. The Gray is a it was just a, an astonishingly good movie because it, mm-hmm. and maybe it's because my 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 the bar was set so low for me by the trailers because the trailers looked like it made it look like it could be an interesting fun movie. Yeah. But it was just kind of like well, the, the trailer made it wolves with bo- okay. Yeah, <laughs> the, the trailer made it look like the movie where Liam Neeson was going to punch a wolf in the face. Exactly. And like and like I'm not the, the, in general, opposed to that idea of no, a movie. those wolves did be punched in the face. But, yeah, <laughs> but the, the trailer really capitalized on the taken and on the unknown mm-hmm. buzz. Like you yeah. like Liam Neeson fighting Europeans, here he is fighting wolves, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's not really what this movie is. Um, no, I would recommend it to anyone. Just keep in mind, it is scary. Uh, it is legitimately yeah. a a not necessarily like. Um, jump out of your seat scary like they don't really play it for a ton of shock no. but there is it's that unsettling kind of fear yeah. where you're just it's like unsettling, you're constantly it, on edge you're never comfortable yeah and you know and it could stay with you after the movie mm-hmm. and part of that is is the deeper themes as well is because it's it 
it's maybe a little unsettling at a deeper level mm-hmm. as well. And I, the, the last caveat I would add is like, I feel like this is a movie a lot of uh, really, I feel like this is a movie a lot of people could really enjoy if they could get past some of the language. It's, yeah. Because I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely an R-rated film. I, it is an R-rated film, and I feel like they might have been able to get a PG-13 if they had toned down the script a little bit, because some of the script, I've, that was my one thing I didn't actually like about it. Some of the F-bombs felt unwarranted. Mm-hmm. And some of it felt completely in place. Some of it was just like, yeah, this is the way people would talk in this situation. That's what that character talks, and that's fine. I don't, I honestly don't have a problem with it. But there's some really great conversations and thoughts that are in this film that I think some people might not be able to get to. That I would love for them to get to to consider. I'd love for some people. I'd love to be able to consider that. I mean, recommend this movie a little bit more freely than I can because yeah. I know that some people who would appreciate it won't be able to enjoy it because they couldn't get past that. Yeah. Um, the other thing I just want to touch on is yeah. just like the making of this movie <laughs> is fascinating to me. Um, I don't know anything about the making. I mean, I know who directed it and stuff. Yeah. But. Well, um, they went to Canada mm-hmm. and shot in 60 below weather <laughs> to get to get the movie. I mean, basically every day they spent, you know, I think I did hear eight that. hours yeah. out in in the weather that you see in the movie. Yeah. Um, you know, not quite blizzard conditions, but you know, pretty serious winter weather mm-hmm. and they shot a movie. Um, you know, there's, there's a part where I saw Liam Neeson talking in, in something and he was like, you know, those first few days is like, what, what did I get myself into? <laughs> um, and I, there was another, another like photo or something I saw from the set. Oh, that, I think, yeah, I saw him talking about this on the daily show, I think, yeah. because I think he actually filmed this movie right after his wife died. I think so. And that really fed into a lot of the emotion and mm-hmm. he he really described this movie as the process of making this movie as being very cathartic for him and i can i watching it i can only imagine that yeah i, I can mean, absolutely that would see be, that because there's there's scenes that just i mean that are can, almost exactly him confronting it yeah and um now there's a there's a photo i saw from the set and like you know there's all this snow blowing and it's cold and they have a giant hot tub that the guys are in, in, like, their full thing. Because, you know, there's this stuff where they're in the blizzard, basically, and, like, going through water and stuff. Yeah. And so, obviously, they're pulling them back to this hot tub to warm up. You know, it's an outdoor hot tub, but they're yeah. pulling them back to it to warm up in between takes and stuff. It, like, oh, well, that that it just, sequence was yeah terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's just, it's it's amazing to me that some, that people would risk, because it, it really just knowing how they made it, it even feel makes the movie feel riskier because it's mm-hmm. it's not a movie made on a set. It's not. It's a, not a movie a, a it, blue like screen film. Like the snow, everything. It's real. About the only thing that isn't always real oh, are the wolves. wolves. I yeah. think there's animatronic wolves, but I don't think they're ever CG. I think. That, oh. I think that that they are always at least an animatronic. Interesting. So I I found that interesting. I could be wrong. There might be some CG somewhere, but I, I vaguely am remembering that. But anyhow. Okay. Last movie I want to talk about before we get into um, The Maltese Falcon is another movie that I have to, I would completely 100% uh, recommend is Looper. Uh, Kelly and I had a date night and we went out to eat and then we went and saw Looper. And man, if you liked 12 Monkeys, if you like... I did. If you like kind of dark movies... Or I movies, do. <laughs> <laughs> You like violent films sometimes yes. yeah you'll like looper um phenomenal just i mean i it was almost it was exactly what i wanted it to be it was not what i was expecting it to be um 
Joseph Gordon-Levitt continues to be an actor. I will, you know, gladly watch anything he's in. Um, and it's really weird sometimes watching him in this movie because they have given him these prosthetics that make him look like a young Bruce Willis. Hmm. Um, he's not the Bruce Willis you know from Die Hard or Moonlighting or wherever you first met Bruce Willis. But in this movie, you can completely see how he would grow up to be Bruce Willis. Hmm. And they really go out of their way a couple times to shoot the two of them in profile looking at each other. And they are identical. It's crazy and kind of creepy and just a, an incredible movie. It's, it's really the kind of movie that I really... I would want to be able to make where they take the concept of time travel, they do something new and weird with it, but do something in a completely, the world is, I think it takes place like the, the initial timeline takes place in 2044. And then Bruce Willis's timeline is in 30 years beyond that. Um, because, okay. For those of you who don't know, basically it's, it's a whole thing. Anyway, it, but it's like it's a it's a future you can honestly kind of imagine us being in in thirty years when you see Joseph Gordon Levitt in twenty forty four. You're like, oh yeah, that's actually where we would be. Um, there's some progress in technology, but there's also a lot of complete lack of progress with society and with other parts of technology. Um, it's really just a fascinating film um, that I really really enjoyed. It's it's like I, like I said at the beginning, it's dark, it's violent. Um, it's very imaginative and clever and very moving. And I mean, not to the point of tears, but there's a Emily Blunt plays the mother to this uh, little boy. And their scenes are just really quite astonishing. This little boy in this is, he's one part adorable, one part creepy, and other times just kind of hilarious. Um, and, I, and I don't want to give away anything about any of that because there's some really, oh, I, I, I really liked it. Looper, when you get a chance. Netflix it, see it in the theater if you can, or whatever. But do check it out. Yeah, that's definitely on my must-watch list. Yeah. So there you go, a bunch of uh, movies. None of them horrible reviews. We've no, been, I mean, none of, that, yeah, none of these were horrible. Um, really? Yeah. So we're good. That, no, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just that that was the, that was one of the disappointments of Taken Two that I didn't touch on is that there's really nothing memorable in the movie. Hmm. You know, it's not like when you think of the gray, you have those scenes or those sequences you think of taken Two did have one really cool sequence in it, but it's a sequence where not a lot happens, but it really explains a lot about the character, but yeah, but yeah, decent movies moving on to the film of the week. Um, the Maltese Falcon. Indeed. Written and directed by John Houston, starring Humphrey Bogart as Sam Spade, a detective who takes on a case that involves him and three executives eccentric criminals, a gorgeous liar, and their quest for a priceless statue. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so says IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of, ah, that works. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's uh, vague enough. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, released in 1941, uh, it's a movie by, written and directed by John Huston, who... Um, yeah, he adapted it from a book of the same name, I believe. Yes. Um... I'm trying to remember, is, is Spade Dashiell Hammett, or is it... Um, um, Humphrey Bogart and Sam Spade. Yes. Well, uh, Hugh, I think, was the... Oh, no, Dashiell Hammett, you're right. Dashiell Hammett, yes. I was trying to remember which, which one was... Yes. Um, Dashiell Hammett. Um, Did he write a whole series of Sam Spade books? Yeah, there's several, there's several Sam Spade um, uh, books. Uh, he also wrote... Um, the Thin Man stories, oh, okay. um, which are actually in my 
uh, the in movies in my uh, list of other things to go watch. That, that would be in mine too. I forgot about the Thin Man. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, same author. Uh, so uh, Sam Spade, he's uh, he's a kind of a hard boiled detective. That's kind of the uh, the whole concept here. You know, this is this is classic film noir, hard boiled detective. Is, yeah, this is the the prototype of. Mm-hmm. The, of the detective mystery, you know, story. Uh, I think we were talking about this before the podcast, is that there were definitely detective movies before this, mm-hmm. but this is the one, and I had never seen this movie, so watching it, I, I was like, I was kind of just checking off the tropes and the trappings of detective stories, and they're all here in this, mm-hmm. where you have the, yeah, the hard-boiled uh, private investigator, um, the, the gorgeous woman who comes in to hire him, he gets pulled into this much bigger mystery, and then you have like the big showdown in the room where he assembles all the suspects and kind of talks his way through the whole mystery. And yeah, I mean, it was it's a yeah. it's a good little mystery film. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's it has all the shooting elements of a film noir. You know, the mm-hmm. large shadows and you know people with yeah. dark faces, black and white, and just the real and, stark yeah. contrasts. Um, yeah. You know, it's uh, as far as the movie itself um it's it's an okay movie i mean it's 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 a pretty decent movie it um the story is maybe a little bit i don't know it both it both tries harder than it needs mm-hmm. to and never gets to quite the the level yeah, that it should it's much smaller of a film than i thought yeah. it was going to be i had never seen this movie before uh this week and it being called the Maltese Falcon and me knowing it's about basically Humphrey Bogart looking for the Maltese Falcon. That was my understanding going in. I didn't think it was going to be like Indiana Jones where he was digging in. I didn't see him as an archeologist, but I did kind of assume in the back of my head that he was going to be kind of world traveling. He was going to go to this guy's mansion and then he's going to go to the Sheik's palace. And then he was going to go somewhere else to find this thing. I really did kind of think that was what this kind of, what this movie was going to be. And then to discover it's actually a much smaller film about essentially a a group of criminals smuggling the Maltese Falcon into America and then him, and then all the, the chaos and murder that um, takes place because of that. I mean, it was still fascinating. It was still interesting. It just wasn't the movie I thought it was going to be. And it's mm-hmm. it's not even a movie that takes place in a lot of different locations. There's a lot of long scenes that are in this office or in this apartment or in this at the dock or whatever. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, I mean it's, a, it's a very solid film that I would recommend to people. But it is a much smaller film than I thought it would be. Yeah, exactly. It's... Um you know, it's it's not really a movie. It, it definitely has a mystery at the core of it, and the mystery is is a decent mystery. That um, again, I think it's kind of one of those things that we're so far removed from it. Mm-hmm. Like we really know how mysteries work today. Yeah. Um, and so you kind of you kind of have to know you're going to kind of get the mystery maybe faster than all of the characters will. Yeah. Um, I think is part of it. But that said it's not as much about the mystery as it is about these, as, as you said, these eccentric characters mm-hmm. and um, the, uh, what I will say the movie has is like really smart writing in it. Oh, it absolutely. Really, really witty dialogue, really smart, snappy, sharp dialogue. Um, that was something I told Kelly afterwards is that I'm actually looking forward to watching this movie a second time because I feel like I missed connections. I feel like it was a movie that, because and it was due to the writing. The writing, I it was so great, but I mean, there's so much sometimes that's going on that it actually has. It's a very dense script at times 
that I felt like I might have missed things. So I want to watch it a second time so I can get a, a much stronger hold on this whole story and the, the relationships of these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's a big thing. This is also the movie that really made... Um, Humphrey Bogart a star, yes, or at least maybe not a, a star, but as a leading man kind of star. This really yes. propelled him. This was yeah. the movie that, and you can see that, and that was mm-hmm. the other takeaway from this film that I had was uh, in watching it. I went well, clearly. I mean, you watch him in this film, and it's like I would cast him. Like you see what he does in this film, and immediately you go, oh, well, we can put him in this kind of movie. We can put him in this kind of movie. He's great at that, and mm-hmm. so you can definitely see where this would be the movie that would propel someone into, into stardom. And he and John Huston both, this was John Huston's first film. And John Huston went on to direct the African queen, the treasure of the Sierra Madre. I mean, which, you know, both team ups again with Humphrey Bogart, but he went on to have a very illustrious career as a director. Yeah, exactly. Um, and speaking of the directing of this movie, um, the, the directing and cinematography, um, were very carefully constructed for it. To tie yes. in, to tie in with the story and the acting and everything, um, you know, there's specific shots that are set up. There's specific lighting. You know, everything is supposed to kind of evoke. Uh, it's it's all it's all crafted to create kind of one element. So um, yeah, you know, from my understanding, like the the director, he actually went through and storyboarded like the whole thing and mm-hmm. said this is spe- and went specifically like shot to shot to shot like this is the way we're telling this story. These are the this is how we're going to do it, which helped several of the actors. Like um, I forget the man's name, the the large man at the core of the mystery. This was his first film. He had had a very uh, he had a, he had a great theatrical career as an actor, but he had never done movies before, and so that was something that he said later on that really helped him was being able to see the director's very specific vision of what he was supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, you know, there's very specific sequences that are you know shot in very um, deliberate ways. There's like, um, you know, I think everybody points to the, the scene where um, Humphrey Bogart is handed a, a drink by um, Sidney Greenstreet's character, and he doesn't drink it, and it keeps getting topped up, and then finally he drinks it, and it's drugged. But the way it's shot, there's never like a... An establishing shot of the drink where you go, right. oh, it's poisoned, kind of <laughs> right. thing. Um, you know, it's all very much in kind of the the glances that people are making each other, and the the eye movements, and the you know timing of everything, and and because it all works, you get this sequence that really mm-hmm. sells itself and pays off in this thing, and it's all shot very deliberately, all very staged, very deliberately, lit deliberately. <laughs> um, you know all of the sequences with Mary Astor, who, who plays the uh, the woman in in this mm-hmm. the the femme fatale. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of hints about her that kind of suggest prison or that kind of thing. Yeah, she's lit. Um, there's there's always kind of like this foreshadowing of like bars around mm-hmm. her, like or stripes or something that kind of would make one think of like a prison outfit or being behind bars or something. It's very interesting the way she shot. Yeah. So that, uh, that's probably one of the most notable things about this movie is just how deliberate and how well crafted it is as a movie. It's, you know, it's very intentional um, about the way everything is put on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, all of that kind of ties up into a package that really works as a film. Um you know the 
uh, you know, the mystery, uh, I always wish the mystery got bigger in this movie because you have this yeah. whole setup with, you know, um, well, yeah, this whole, th- the whole thing with, you know, the, the Falcon and you have this whole thing with, uh, the Knights Templar and, you know, all yeah, of these they, really the, big there's concepts. There's like this kind of Star Warsian opening crawl that made you go, Ooh, they're bringing in Charles V and the Knights Templar. Mm-hmm. And Oh, this is going to be good. And, and so even going through that, I was like, this is going to be a really interesting film. And it was, it just, again, doesn't ever quite get as big as yeah. one might want today, and and that is maybe my biggest issue with it. Other than that, I, you know, I love I love kind of how the Falcon itself is kind of, you know, uh, it's it's just this this thing that may or may not be real. Um, you know, it's the stuff that dreams are made of, and yeah, um, you know, it's and and that's kind of the driving motivation is you know it it means something to all of these different people, and you know it's. It's small, and they're doing kind their of, best to get it. And it's like the ultimate MacGuffin. It's like it really is just yeah. this. One, the Falcon really just just does serve to get everybody, everybody going. Each other. Yeah, yeah, to get the story going. And yeah. so it's it's very, um, yeah, you know, it's it's just a very interesting kind of thing. Uh, so that's maybe my only critique. And at the same time, it works for the story to kind of keep it because it ultimately does make the story about the characters, about their motivations, about. Um, you know the the concepts of of this detective coming into situations that he doesn't necessarily understand and having to read people and body language and mm-hmm. the scene versus what people are actually saying and, yeah. you know um i think all of that works very well and as you said at the beginning you know this is very much the movie that created yeah. all of the stereotypes all of the prototypes for the film noir genre and for detective movies for mm-hmm. years and years to come. Um, yep. And there were there were movies before it, tons of movies after it, but this is the one that has been emulated, parodied, yeah, exactly. and copied yeah. more than anything. And that, exactly. And you said it before the podcast, I think, that we, you know, we have no problem with this being on the AFI Top 100. It might not, if you try to compare it directly to some, other, some of the films on the AFI Top 100, it might not mm-hmm. fare as well, but knowing that this is the movie that really this is the prototype this is film noir detective stories this right here and so this the fact that this is the one that made the biggest splash and maybe it's not even the best detective story from the 1940s but this is the one for whatever reason whether it's because of humphrey bogart or if it's because of the falcon itself or just how well it was told for whatever reason this movie made the biggest splash, made the biggest dent in people's memories and psyches. And so this is the movie people go back to when they think about it. And for that, it absolutely deserves to be on the AFI Top 100. This is the detective movie. You know, if someone said, I want to make a noir film, I go, well, let's watch the Maltese Falcon first. <laughs> let's exactly. see what they did there. Exactly. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's a movie that, it's a movie that in and of itself sums up and defines a genre. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, and that's a major achievement for a film. And on top of that, it is a it is a good movie. Oh, it is on top of all it of is. That. So any, I, any know, kind of negative criticism I I'm throwing at it is within the light of this being a really solid film and being a really good movie. Exactly, a movie that you know that impresses. You know, each of these act, every actor that's in this really shines and you would you know you can absolutely see that like in 1941 when this comes out i bet all of those actors phones were immediately ringing off the hook with you know scripts whether you know whether it's just you know character parts for some of the supporting people or you know huge parts for humphrey bogart and mary astor it's like yeah (laughs) this is a solid solid film 
Exactly. Um, so, some other movies. Scott, what, what would you suggest uh, if people like this? Yeah. Um, admittedly, the film noir genre is not my home. I don't. I haven't watched a lot of movies, but there were two that I did think of while I was watching this that I enjoy very much. One is The Third Man uh, with Orson Welles. Uh, I believe they're doing a remake of it right now, um, I want to say, but I might be wrong. Anyway, The Third Man is definitely a very thrilling kind of mystery uh, story uh, that I really, really enjoyed. I would definitely recommend that to anybody. It was, really, it was a movie that I picked up solely because Orson Welles was in it, and I was like, I have not seen this movie. I should watch it, and loved it. Kind of surprised at how small a part Orson Welles has in it, but once he shows up, the whole movie and the whole story changes, and it's fantastic. And then the movie that this really did, that I kept thinking about, especially once we got to the climax of the film, is one of my favorite films from childhood, and it is a movie that I will revisit not once a year, but pretty often because I need a good laugh. Um, the second Pink Panther film, A Shot in the Dark, hmm. uh, with Peter Sellers and uh, everybody else from that whole franchise of films. Um, I love the shot, A Shot in the Dark. I love it more than any of the other Pink Panther films. I don't even know if it compares better if other people like the first one. I don't even care. This movie is just ridiculous. And it really, more than the other Pink Panther films, really serves to be a parody of the the P.I. noir kind of uh, trappings and tropes. Um, you know, it's a, it's a Inspector Clouseau is invited to a mansion to investigate a shooting, and it all ends with him getting all the suspects in a room and, you know, going through the night that the person was shot and kind of going through and talking about, you know, who did what and you know, it's ridiculous and hilarious and I really just kind of I love it. And a shot in the dark. Check it out. Yeah. Um, I, just a couple of things to add to that. Um, you know, while we're kind of on the whole absurdist kind of comedy sort of thing, um, Steve Martin did a, a comedy a few years ago called Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, I'm putting it here in my recommendations or suggestions, not because it's a good movie, <laughs> um, because I, I don't think I could classify it that way in any way, shape, or form. Um, but what's really fascinating about it is that they took and filmed new scenes with Steve Martin mm-hmm. and then cut him into like dialogue sequences and stuff from other movies. So there's tons of like elements. Kung Pao into the fist. Yes. So there's <laughs> probably, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's these scenes where you'll have Steve Martin on whatever absurd mystery case that he is on here. And then, you know, he'll dial the phone and get, Humphrey Bogart from the Maltese Falcon on it. And so they kind of repurpose old footage from all of these film noir movies into an absurdist, weird, new <laughs> mystery. Um, I need to see this. I have not seen this. Yeah. It's, again, I, I, I can't recommend it from a being a good movie kind mm-hmm. of standpoint, but being from an interesting <laughs> film noir standpoint, I'll put it in there. Um and it, it, that's not my highest recommendation, but it just it segued, it segued nice, nicely from the Pink Panther. Yes. Um, as far as probably my favorite film noir film, um, I really love The Big Sleep, which um, is, I believe it's a Philip Marlowe mm-hmm. story. Um, it still has Humphrey Bogart in it. It's Philip Marlowe. And it's kind of the other movie that a lot of... Um, a lot of stuff that we know today from film noir is really mm-hmm. based on. It... Um, it has Lauren Bacall in it as well as Humphrey Bogart, and you know it's they have 
just this chemistry on the screen that is sizzling and i mean dialogue that'll kind of curl your hair um it's kind of you know hot and sultry enough that um it's it's a great sort of movie Mm -hmm. um we already mentioned the thin man also dashiell hammett uh wrote wrote those and Mm -hmm. um those are just fun murder mystery movies that um I I love the whole series of them. There's I don't know six or eight of them or something like that, and they're all pretty great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, uh, jumping back to the director here, John Huston, um, he also directed The African Queen, which is and, really really good, and Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which are both fantastic Humphrey Bogart mm-hmm. vehicles. Catherine Hepburn is in The African Queen. African Queen. Uh, African Queen is probably probably in my top. 20 movies i i love that movie it's Mm -hmm. um you know again like we were talking with the gray people going on location doing crazy stuff you know they actually went and were shooting in you know these really horrible locations and you know it's it's a pretty serious production um to go to africa and make this movie at the point that they did it and uh uh and it turned out as a fantastic Mm -hmm. film um and then uh i know we talked about it last last time i think um on the podcast or a couple times ago but casablanca yes um you know it's to me to me casablanca and, and the maltese falcon share a lot of stuff they both kind of have this air of mystery and intrigue you know the maltese falcon the maltese falcon really to me seems like something that could have been transported through casablanca yeah um, during everything, you know, it's it's almost like these two stories could happen concurrently. Oh, absolutely! You could absolutely um, imagine Rick being really upset by somebody smuggling something through his his place. You know, and be like, and it becoming an issue there. I mean, it's mm-hmm. yeah, they're very tonally similar. Yeah, and so uh, you know, it, really, I would say those two movies are probably the, the two closest sorts of things, despite being worlds apart genre wise. Um, so yeah, that's that's a few recommendations for you there. Cool. Uh, the the last movie I would recommend because this to me is uh, the prototype for the mystery. The other movie I would recommend happens to be the movie we're going to be discussing next week, which is Chinatown, which may be the perfection of the genre. You know, this is the other movie I have, the other one of the other few kind of detective noir films that I have seen, and I actually really really like this movie. Um, but it's number twenty one on AFI's top one hundred, and we'll be discussing it next week. So come back then. In the meantime, check us out again. Like I said at the beginning, check us out on Twitter at Movies You Should. Um, join the con- join in. Tell us what you think about this movie. Tell us what you think about other movies. Check out our other episodes at MovieYouShouldLove.com. We have all sorts of interesting things going up over there all the time. And also, friend us on uh, Facebook.com, Movies You Should. And uh, we'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Movies You Should Love podcast. Join in the conversation at MoviesYouShouldLove.com. 